And um, we're going to pray after I read to you. You can keep bowing your heads, and I'm going to read this um, these verses from Isaiah as a part of the prayer. So, you know, again, just close your eyes, and we'll pray the prayer in Scripture, because these are the words of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so, Father, we turn to you now, and we ask that you would fulfill these words in our presence today, that you would take your word, your holy scriptures, and that you would use um, them to accomplish your purposes in us and in our lives, and that you would use this time to do that. And we also ask that you would open our hearts and our minds ever more widely to your son, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word, who has gone out from you to accomplish your purposes of salvation in our midst. And so it's in his name that we pray this prayer. Amen. So, I don't know if you noticed, but I did use, that was that passage that I did for those of you who were here last semester. I looked at Isaiah 55, and there's something about Isaiah 55 that is so wonderful with John chapter 1, when you have the eternal word, Jesus Christ, existing before all creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then if you look at this Isaiah 55 passage, you can see God is talking about his word that goes out from his mouth. This is back in Isaiah. Accomplishes his purposes and comes back to him. And isn't that just exactly who Jesus is? That He is God Almighty. He is the Son of the Father. And he goes out from the Father. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that language. The one who sent me. He keeps talking about him being sent by the Father. And even in the end, when he breathes on the disciples and sends them out, he's sending them out just as he was sent out from the Father. So there's that aspect of sending the word, God sending the word out to accomplish its purposes on the earth, and then the word comes back to the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He went from heaven to be born as a little baby. Um, the eternal word, also the Messiah, fully God, fully man, to accomplish God's purposes on earth, and that to live, to die, to rise, and then to ascend back to the Father's right hand in heaven. So there's a sense in which that little, that little nugget in Isaiah 55 applies to John. So we're going to continue to just read that, those verses as a part of our study of John in this semester, looking at how is Jesus that eternal word that has gone out from the Father and come back to him? So, um, so it's just something to keep up and think about. You can think about it some more and ask me questions about it next week if you're thinking, Deborah, I don't really see how this applies. But, um, but it will be there. You'll find it there at the top of our handouts for, it, um, for this semester. So I have friends and um, even family members who are painters, oil painters, like like this, and they, um, they look at the big picture, and they look at the small picture. Um, they get up real close, and they do the little tiny detail work with the tiny brush strokes, and then what they'll do, my sister is, she's the really good one. My dad's really good too, but she's pretty good. She'll, um, but don't tell my sister. She'll step back, so she'll be like this, she'll be like, going like that, and then she'll step back and take a look at it. And when you go to the art museum, don't you do the same thing? When you see something that you really love, you want to get up really close, you want to see just how they did it, and then you step back. It's very often when you step back that you can get a sense for the whole work. Um, and sometimes that's the most moving thing. Sometimes the most moving thing is to get up and look at the brush strokes and say, wow, this person was a genius, that they created this um, composite picture from these little tiny brush strokes. I think of that especially with, you know, Surratt, the pointillist. You get up really close and you did everything with the little tiny dots. And then you get back and it makes this one big picture. And that's actually what we have with, um, when I talk about scripture as a work of art, it's because the beauty of 
the word of God compels me to worship God, just like the beauty of a painting um, brings me joy. Um, and actually, that also causes me to worship God. But specifically with the word, there's something not just, um, it, the word of God is true, and I love to point out that the word of God is also beautiful because it's um, God-breathed, and so God, the, our creator, the creator of all the universe, the whole universe, of course he can speak a word through his prophets and apostles that is not just true, but also beautiful and something to behold. And I get that sense with every single book of the Bible, but I especially get that sense with John. John is this gospel that is beautiful to behold. And so um, what we're going to do today, you know, we've been in the Gospel of John. We've been in, um, you've been in the Gospel of John, studying the Gospel of John with Andrew. Um, and you're on most, you know, you've gotten to chapter six, right? So um, what we're going to do, we're going to pick up chapter six next week. But what we're going to do right now during this hour is we're going to step back and look again at the big picture Especially for those of you who are um, joining in just now, it'll help you get a sense of where we've been and then where we're going. Give you the bigger picture before we dive back into the brushstrokes. Okay. So, when I look at anything from scripture, I start to become an investigative reporter. So there's that le left, uh, the right-brained artist that says, yes, I love this beauty and the beauty is going to bring me to worship God even more, that appreciation for the beauty. But then there's also this left-brained investigative, if I can even say the word, reporter. And so that's where I start to ask all these questions that you have on your sheet. And that's always a helpful thing when you're looking at Scripture and studying Scripture on your own to ask yourself, especially as you're reading a passage, who is this about? What is it? Where is it set? When is it happening? When is it happening in Jesus' ministry, if it's a gospel passage? Um, and who, what, where, when, why, how? All of those questions can help you dig deeper without even having a study. You know, so it's wonderful if you have a Bible study with the questions that they'll ask you that you um, work with alongside your Bible when you, when you study your Bible on your own. But it's also helpful if you don't have a study but you want to dig a little deeper, just start asking yourself these questions. Become an investigative reporter and say who, what, where, when, why, how. So what we're going to do today is we're doing that about the whole book of John. Who, what, where, when, why, how about the whole book. Um, so looking first at the who. Who wrote the book of John? You'll get people saying all sorts of things everywhere about, oh, it was... Um, this or that, and there are theories about all of that, but I'm not going to bore you with all the theories except to say that the best theory that I've seen and the one that all of the research seems to point to is that John, the son of Zebedee, as in John and James and Peter, that inner three in that circle of 12 disciples, circle of 12 apostles, because we know that there were more disciples. Luke tells us there were more than just the 12 apostles. <coughs> I think we all think of those famous paintings of the Last Supper, right, with Jesus in the middle and the 12 men surrounding him. Well, a couple things about that. There were a lot of other people probably in the upper room because there were a lot of other disciples, tons of disciples, and disciples that were not just men but also women. We know that through Luke, that women were also following Jesus around the Palestinian countryside, which was completely unusual. And they were also paying the way, too. We know that, that the, some of the benefactresses of Jesus' ministry were, in fact, benefactresses, women, who were using um, their life savings. They were probably widows who didn't have families to take care of, and they were using their savings. They were using their income to be able to support Jesus, which is kind of cool. I like that. Um, so there are men and women following Jesus, um, but the men, the 12 apostles that he chose to be his special 12 to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, of those 12, there were then three who got to see more than the other 12. We see this all throughout, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The three go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they see Jesus in that revealed glory, that transfigured glory. And so it is um, with those three in mind that we, we look at um, this eyewitness authorship. Um, and, and of all four Gospels, we said that all four Gospels 
are um, written by eyewitnesses or written by those who were recording, writing down the testimony of those who had witnessed um, the events of Jesus' life. And that's true of all four Gospels. So look at what Irenaeus says. Did I put, I put that quote on your sheet, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we have, we, it talks about Matthew. I'll let you read on your own about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but essentially then what Irenaeus is saying is he's talking about the Gospel of John. And he says, afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also lent upon his breast, so that gives us more information about John, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So, he is saying that the gospel of John is written by John, the disciple of the Lord, John, the son of Zebedee, who is James' brother. Then what he's also saying is that this John, son of Zebedee, is the one who had lent upon Jesus' breast. Do you remember what that refers to? Does anybody remember I'm actually, I really do mean it, call out if you remember what it is. I won't ask you to raise your hand like you're in grade school, but feel free to call it. Do you remember what that is? Who lent upon Jesus' breast? It's from the Last Supper? It is from the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, again, again, remember that painting, you know, Da Vinci, you see Jesus in the middle and they're all sitting at a big table. That's not how they ate in the Middle East. <clears throat> they reclined to eat. And so what it means is this is the one who is reclining right next to Jesus in the place of honor as they're eating. And um, in John, in John's description of the Last Supper in the upper room, it is, or it is John himself. Well, it's the one who's called the beloved disciple throughout the Gospel of John. And so what we have here is whenever you see the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John, you can be sure based on Irenaeus' words and on early church tradition it's talking about John, son of Zebedee. Because we have, and the evidence within the gospel suggests that, and the evidence in the other gospels suggests that as well, because we have no other mention of John, son of Zebedee. So we have Aaron saying, John, son of John, who wrote the gospel, is John, son of Zebedee. He's also the beloved disciple, the same person. So who? There's our who, right? Who is John? Um, and John also, um, being an eyewitness to Jesus, he is the one, he is one of those three who went up on that Mount of Transfiguration. He was an eyewitness to the Transfiguration of Jesus. Do you think that that might be informing what um, the Gospel of John says in chapter 1, verse 14? Does anybody have that? I happen to have it open to John 1, 14. But does anybody want to read what John 1, 14 says? Uh, yes, um, that's exactly right. Do you want to finish it, Betsy? And the world became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Thank you. I love behold at first see. Isn't that a great translation? Mine says see, but I like yours better, Betsy. Behold, we have beheld. That beholding, this person who's writing the Gospel of John has beheld the glory of the Word made flesh. I do think that refers to the Mount of Transfiguration. I do think that it's John, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple who was there on the mountain, who got to see the veil of Jesus' humanity lifted and saw that glory that Jesus had, that heavenly glory, the glory of one who is sent from the Father, who is indeed God himself. So how beautiful. This person who wrote this is an eyewitness. An eyewitness testimony is very important because um, it's reliable. It's reliable in court, and it's reliable through Scripture. There's another one I'd like you to turn to, um, 1935, still in John. See, we're going from the beginning. We're going towards the end of the gospel, too. This is the big picture. We might be flipping around a lot today like this. Um, 1935, does someone have it and want to read it? He who saw it was, uh, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth that you also may believe. Thank you, Charlotte. He who saw it 
And what is he talking about? Do you see what the verse before it says? He's talking about Jesus' death. He's talking about um, the, the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' side when he was pierced with the spear um, by the soldier rather than having his bones broken. This, um, this account of the, of the crucifixion is the only one that contains that information. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell us about the blood and the water flowing from Jesus' side. And one reason we think why, why that's included here and not in other ones is because it's important information that this disciple, this eyewitness, had that the others didn't have. And it continues to communicate what John wants to communicate through um, Jesus' crucifixion, which is essentially that he is the lamb that was slain for the world. And when we get later on down the road, when we get to Jesus' crucifixion, you'll see there's all of this information that, that points to that, to, that helps to convince Jewish Christian readers that, that, that Jesus is the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb. Um, so how could this eyewitness have said this information that only exists in the Gospel of John? Well, he must have been there, right? If you look ahead in the same chapter... In verse 26, it says, um, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So there is the disciple that Jesus loved, who's John. There's John standing at the cross. We have all of the other gospel writers telling us that it was only women standing at the cross, and they give us their names. We know that there are some women disciples, um, and Jesus' mother <coughs> were there at the foot of the cross. This is the only gospel that tells us that, that, that one of the male disciples was there as well. And there it is, the beloved disciple, John himself. <coughs> so there is John at the cross witnessing Jesus' death. He um, has this information about the blood and the water flowing from Jesus' side. So again, that sense in which the eyewitness testimony is very important to John, and as he's writing his gospel, because he's even talking consciously about an eyewitness testimony. But again, this just confirms all around that John, the son of Zebedee, who's also the beloved disciple, is the author of the gospel of John. Um, so any questions about that? Any questions about the use of the beloved disciple itself to refer to John, the author, and the son of Zebedee? Because there, there has been much ink spilled about the beloved disciple. So anything you've heard that you'd like to share? Anything you'd like to ask me about that? Because I didn't even go there. Um, but before we move on, anything about that? Just yes. one thing going back to uh, chapter 1, verse 35. Yes. Translation of the Bible that I have to try to King James this <laughs> is that this report is from an eyewitness. Mm -hmm. It says eyewitness. Isn't that amazing? It says eyewitness. And giving an accurate account, it is presented so that you can all that you also can believe. Yes. And you get a purpose statement in there as well, right? Do you see what the first anything that says so that so is that. a why. It's a why. Right. So that you might believe. And that's why John, all throughout his gospel, places such importance on testimony. And, uh, you know, I started, I put a little bit in, in your outline about can I get a witness? And I realized that I, I just have too much information about that to share with you today. But we'll talk about that in the future. There is so much in the gospel of John, specifically, and not in the other gospels, about the importance of eyewitness testimony. There's, um, in, and it's because of, um, the veracity of a statement in court. You know, in court, in the Jewish court, you needed two witnesses to, you know, to be able to affirm whether or not someone did something or not. And here, throughout the Gospel of John, the witnesses are all affirming and bearing witness to Jesus' identity. And so you'll have Jesus himself talking about, this bears witness, this bears witness, and this bears witness to who I am. Um, what more do you need? <laughs> then he starts to say, why don't you believe yet? Why don't you believe the truth about who I am? So, um, so again, it is, that's right. That's the so that, so that you might believe. Anything else before we move on to the where and the when? I'm, I'm yeah, not sure really. I know this, but who's Irenaeus? 
Oh, Irenaeus is um, Irenaeus of Lyon, and I forget his exact date, so don't pin me to it, but that's where I get to use the French, right, Lyon. Irenaeus of Lyon, he, um, he is an early church father who was writing um, before 300, but I think it's in the early 200s. I'm really bad with dates, um, but that's the kind of thing you can Google pretty easily. But he's a wonderful early church father who was um, very clearly making an apologetic for Christianity in a mostly pagan culture in France. Um, and, and what's amazing about Irenaeus, though, is you get the sense, we don't have this now because we're a literate culture and we're a visual culture. I mean, look at us. We each have our own Bibles. How amazing is that? That would have never happened before the Reformation. That would have never happened um, in a society where people couldn't read and where the materials for books were so expensive that what you know individuals could not own books. So essentially, in the first in the first century, when these letters are being written, and then in the following centuries, even through Irenaeus, what they would do is they would have one book for the whole church. So you could kind of forget about a quiet time on your own that involves reading scripture. You had to come to church to read scripture. And um, you had to come to hear the scripture read aloud. So you also had to have better ears than we have too, you know, than we have now too. You know, I, um, I, when I, before I had a cell phone, I remembered about 10, at least 10 numbers off the top of my head. I don't know if that's the case with you as well. But now that I have a cell phone, I don't, I, I barely know my own number. <laughs> you know, I know one other number besides my numbers, and that's probably my parents' home phone number, which I had already memorized before I had a cell phone. So that's the only one that I still have in there. It's, it's kind of atrocious how if our brains atrophy if we don't use it. And the same is true with an oral memory. And so one of the things we forget as a literate culture is that before we had so many literate people in our society, people had these incredible memories because they still had these incredible human brains that we have. Thank you, God, for making us have such wonderful brains. We're the only creatures that have such wonderful brains. Um, that they, you know, before literacy, they would remember, I mean, verses upon verses, just so much books full of information in their heads, and they would continue to um, practice it by saying it aloud in the community. So one of the things that people forget, and this is sort of an excursus on how the Gospels were written, and many people will ask, okay, well, how could this still be an eyewitness testimony if it wasn't written down until 20 years after Jesus' death? That's the earliest, or 20 or 30 years after Jesus' death. So stay with the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest Gospel to be written, I think. I think, I think the scholarship points to that. How could that still be an accurate eyewitness testimony? And a lot of people in our culture today will discredit that. Well, 20 years later, they were just making it up. How do, It's not really accurate based on what actually happened. That's poppycock because the oral culture mentality, they were probably repeating what Jesus was saying. They were probably repeating Jesus' teaching to themselves and then also corporately as disciples. You know, an eye for an eye. You say an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. You know, all of that from the Sermon on the Mount. They were repeating it to themselves, memorizing it, internally digesting it from that very first time they heard it. And then with the events of Jesus' life, they were repeating those events. Remember when Jesus this or this or this? And do you ever have this in your family when you'll have this communal memory about something and you'll say, remember when this and this happened? And someone will be like, that's not what happened. It was like this. I have this with my sister who reminds me continually, and I think I've already mentioned this, about how I punched her in the face in the middle of the night once when I was about seven years old. I have no recollection of this event, surprisingly, but she will remind me all the time about it. So there's that sense in which this corporate memory, uh, uh, you know, hammers out what actually happened and says, no, that didn't happen that way. And so there is some variation in terms of eyewitness accounts, but the really important information is preserved. So you can trust that in this oral culture, the really important information was preserved. They actually didn't trust the written word, which was maybe why it took so long for the Gospels to be written down. Um, but then with Irenaeus, back to Irenaeus, Irenaeus is in, still in a mostly non-literate culture, of course, and um, what he's talking about, his information is also true. We know that his, his testimony is probably about who wrote what and when they wrote it, 
is reliable, I do think, because the tradition was passed down from church father to church father. So the leaders in the church would say to those that they were training for leadership in the church, they would tell them orally the gospel and the history of the church, and they would repeat it back and forth until they had it right. And if someone was telling something other than what they all knew to be true, they'd say, no, don't listen to him. He's not He's not right. He's not right. And there would be a sense in which he was sort of excluded from the community. So there's this corporate hammering out of the truth that maintains the tradition and passes it down from one leader to the next. And that's why apostolic succession is so important. Because the bishops in the early church have this role of teaching and maintaining the truth of the tradition regarding Jesus, uh, the truth of what actually happened. And so you'll see with John it's really neat because there's... Um, and I always forget the names of the bishop, bishops, but there's so-and-so sat at the feet of so-and-so who sat at the feet of John who sat at the feet of Jesus. And there's one historic um, reference to that apostolic tradition in practice. Um, so there is a greater reliability than modern scholars and modern people who don't know what they're talking about will, um, will, will attest about scripture. Um, I hope that... Yeah, thank you. Good, yeah. So. Okay, anything else? And Irenaeus was a bishop, bishop to of Lyon. I think he was martyred. I don't know. So many people were martyred. Okay, on to the where. Where and when. We know, well, first of all, where. Well, Irenaeus' tradition, you know, what he's saying is true. We also know this from other um, early church tradition that John ended up in Asia Minor, in Ephesus. Um, the churches in Ephesus, you know, the church in Ephesus and the churches around them were highly influenced by John. And um, one of the things that I love about that is that church tradition also holds that that's where Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent her last days. How neat is that? That what we just read about Jesus entrusting his mother into the care of the beloved disciple, who is John, this confirms it is John, and they went together. He took care of her and brought her to Ephesus, and there um, they were a part of the church in Ephesus. Um, so he's probably writing from Ephesus he was probably writing, they were probably the first ones who read this gospel. And then um, these gospels, as they were written, were really passed around and shared. Because if you were the only one with a great book, a great testimony to Jesus' life, you wanted to make sure that your other Christian brothers and sisters in the next town were able to see it. So you'd share around. Um, so then the date. Um, it, it, John is the latest of the, of the gospels written. And so what Irenaeus says is correct, that um, it... It was after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, then John was written. And one of the reasons that's, uh, that I think, one of the things that I think confirms this is that I do believe that John was trying to flesh out what people already knew from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if I had a, what, you know, does anybody know what a Venn diagram is? Because if I had a nice little easel, I'd draw it for you. A Venn diagram, I'm going to try to draw it in the ear, so see if you can see it. So there's one circle here, and there's another circle here, and there's another circle here. And each of the two circles overlap a little bit, and then all three overlap as well. That's a great visual pictorial diagram for understanding Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because each of the two of them share information together that have the same content. And then all three of them have some of the same content. And by that, certainly all four have some of, of the same content about Jesus, about his life and ministry that had involved miracles and teaching, that um, he died on the cross and that he rose after the third day. That's pretty amazing to have all that in common because it's all true. So they're all bearing witness to it. But when you have these three, what you'll have that's in common is you'll have verbatim Thing, things in common in the Greek, word for word, the exact same thing in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark and Luke, and Mark and Matthew, and um, Mark and Luke, and Luke and Matthew, and so you'll see, there, it's, like, it's like the biggest puzzle you've ever seen to try and look at it all, but it's a lot of fun. John, however, is different. You don't have a lot of the verbatim similarities that you have with other Gospels with John. And so that's why scholars scratch their heads about John and don't understand, well, he was not using the same written sources. And he's not. He's going from 
his own memory as an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. And he's writing after these other gospel writers. So I do think that he's introducing material that he thinks it's important for the Christian churches to know that they've not included. And then also, I do think he's incorporating it all in a schema that is very different from the other gospel writers. Each gospel writer has um, some variation that goes towards their number one goal of presenting the gospel of Jesus. And you'll see that with, um, like, for example, just to give you a little off the top of my head, that Mark, for example, has this importance laid on the secrecy of Jesus's ministry. So Jesus will heal someone, and then he'll say, don't tell anyone. And in the other gospels, you don't see that. He has them encouraging them to tell Everyone, I think, I think Jesus, I think it's true. Both are true. So why is he telling some people to not tell anyone and others to tell everyone? And I think, you know, so what is that about Mark that's different than these other Gospels? Or um, Matthew is very interesting. Matthew is clearly trying to show that um, Jesus is tied into the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he divides, Matthew clearly divides his whole presentation of the Gospel into five distinct sections. He's trying to um, help his readers remember that Jesus is in continuity with the Old Testament, with what they've known for Jewish believers. Um, and then with Luke, you have other presentations. It's very interesting. One thing that I love about Luke, you'll have him describing a male disciple and then a female disciple, right, side by side, one after the other. Just And it begins right at the beginning with Simeon and Anna in the temple, Right, the baby Jesus is brought in and presented in the temple. And there is an elderly man and an elderly woman who have both been waiting for the Messiah expectantly, who have spent their whole lives waiting for the Messiah. And they both rejoice when they see Jesus because they say, this is it. So that's one thing about Luke. They each have these different characteristics. But with John, we're going to go into some of the characteristics in the last right, 15 minutes about John that are different from the other three. Um, so any questions about that before I move on to what, why, and how? I hope I'm not giving you too much information all at once. <laughs> okay. Well, um, one thing, too, just before a passing glance at mixed readership, um, which is essentially what does that mean except that who, that's the question of asking to whom. Who, is, who does John have in mind when he first wrote his gospel, who did he expect the first congregation to receive his gospel? What did he expect that congregation to look like? And I think it's very clear based on his presentation of the gospel that he expected his congregation to be both of, uh, to be a mixed congregation of Jewish Christians and then also newly converted Gentile believers. And I'll go even further to say newly converted Gentile believers who had a background in Greek philosophy, in new Greek philosophy. And I'll even go a little further to say with the Je Jewish believers that there was probably a mix of Jewish believers who um, were very, um, very devout, very um, by the book um, uh, Jews who followed the Torah and who were a part of the sacrificial system at um, Jerusalem through the temple. But then I'll also say that there was a group of Jewish people who were um, very knowledgeable of Greek philosophy as well. Um, so all of that to say, that's for another day. But he's writing to this mixed group of people, and you see it in the way he presents his information, because he is so clearly presenting Jesus as the Messiah, the one who fulfills all the Jewish hopes and expectations for um, a Davidic king. And that he also clearly portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Jewish festivals and then even of the Jewish temple. So you'll see throughout John that he structures um, Jesus, his narration of Jesus' life around the Jewish feasts. And then he draws from the Jewish feasts the symbolism within the Jewish feasts. That's that symbolism of light, water, bread, all of those important things that are such a tangible part of um, Jewish religious life based on their history as the people of God coming out of Egypt. And John is essentially taking all of those things and saying, yes, but Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment. He is the true bread that came down from heaven. And that manna in the wilderness was just a foretaste 
of the true bread. That manna was just meant to give you a little taste of what was to come in Jesus. So that's how he's writing to the Jews, um, the Jewish Christians in this congregation. And then as far as the Greeks are concerned, um, the Logos. When we look at the very beginning, the prologue, and we've read it recently several times. We read it on Christmas Day. We read it on the first Sunday after Christmas. Um, and, and we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word for word in the Greek, the logos. Have you heard that before? Logos. You'll get a lot of Bible software, and it's called logos Bible software. It's because it's talking about the Bible, the Word. Um, or Jesus, the word. Um, and so the logos itself, that was this Greek word used to describe wisdom. Um, and, and it's used in Stoic and uh, Stoic philosophy and um, throughout the you know, Greek philosophy. But what's really interesting, too, is that there is a Jew in exile in Alexandria named Philo who takes some Greek philosophy and he takes some Jewish um, history and some of the intertestamental literature, so some of the books written after Malachi, um, and he t looks at them and he says, this wisdom that's talked about in Proverbs and then in the intertestamental book of Ecclesiasticus, that wisdom inc incarnate, that wisdom that calls people to come, buy, drink water without price, drink wine without price. Do you remember that passage that we talked about, Isaiah 55? That um, wisdom, in, uh, God's wisdom is the word, and he calls it the word, and he used the word, and he's writing in Greek. So he uses logos to talk about wisdom. Jewish wisdom, the wisdom of God, which is a really important theme within Jewish thought. So he's taking these ideas and he's combining them together and using them all to say they all point to Jesus. Um, so we know it was a mixed group. Um, then now we're just going to go on to what, why, and how pretty quickly. I left the most important things for last, and now I don't have as much time. But when you look at the Gospel of John... I like to divide it, and this is arbitrary, but a lot of scholars have done this, and I find it helpful, and I find their titles helpful, to divide it into two halves and to just say, well, chapters 1 through 11, we could call that, let's call it, and I can just picture the first scholar who thought it, let's call it the book of signs. And the reason why it's called the book of signs is because throughout chapters 1 through 11, there are seven, and seven is an important number in Jewish thought, Seven is a number of completion. Seven is a very important number. So there are seven signs. And the signs, the word that he uses is semea. And the sign, that's sign in Greek. And it's different than the word used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke for Jesus' miracles. But sign is talking about Jesus' miracles. When you look at the seven signs in chapters 1 through 11, they're all miracles that Jesus is doing. But what John is saying by calling them signs is he's saying... These miracles are not there just to make you happy. They're not just there so that, yes, they're there so that this one person whose life was changed by them because he was healed, whose life was changed by this sign, it's not just for his health and his wholeness that it happened. Yes, it is for his health and his wholeness, but there's a larger purpose. And so God's larger purpose in these signs that Jesus does is that these signs are meant to do just what our signs do, right? Our signs, signs have an arrow pointing you where you're supposed to go. Our signs that we have, I'm thinking of road signs, they're not the thing themselves, but they point to the thing about which they describe. And so the signs of Jesus' ministry essentially lift the veil on his identity. And they say, look, he is the one who changes water into wine. He is the one who heals. He is the one who heals not just anybody, but heals someone who had a condition from birth, like the man born blind in chapter 9. He is the one who takes bread and multiplies it so that 5,000 can eat. He is the one who can walk on water. And then eventually the last sign in chapter 11, he is the one who can raise a man from the dead. And that's the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. So you look at those first, um, that first book of signs, you have all of those seven signs. And then once you get to the um, chapter 11, then it's almost as though things start going downhill from there. Because as soon as Jesus raises Lazarus, it's very clear in the Gospel of John that once he raises Lazarus, then his death 
is sealed. His fate is sealed in the minds of the religious authorities of Jerusalem because he has so many people are going after him. His popularity has soared. And so at that high point of his ministry, as some might see it in an earthly sense, the authorities say, that's it. That's the last straw. We have got to do something about this guy. We've got, we've got to do this. And so that's when they start to plan to kill him. And that's when things go downhill. That's when you see the anointing at Bethany, where Mary is anointing his feet um, with the perfume and with her hair as um, preparation for his burial. That's when we start hearing about his death. And that's when, in chapter 12, he enters Jerusalem. From there, so chapters 12 through 21, essentially, in time, they cover the events of one week. Chapters 1 through 11 covered the three years of Jesus' ministry. But then chapters 12 through 21 cover that last week of Jesus' life. Okay, so that's a structural overview. There's another thing, in addition to the signs, um, that's characteristic of John's Gospel that is meant to draw um, the reader into knowing more about who is this Jesus Christ. Um, So again, this is the question of what and how. What is John saying, and how does he say it? Um, And one of the ways in which he, again, lifts that veil on Jesus' identity, lifts that veil on showing us that Jesus is, in fact, that divine word of God, that eternal word that existed before all else. And then secondly, that Jesus is also the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Jewish hopes. So um, he is both fully God and fully man. And I would say that um, the gospel is, number one, trying to show us that. John's trying to show us that. And he does that through, um, through the signs and then also through these I am statements. There are seven I am statements. And I'm sure you've heard of this, the ego amis in John. Uh, he says in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In um, chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and I am the door. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in chapter 15, I am the vine, and you are the branches. All of these I am statements in the Greek, they literally are I am. But Jesus didn't say them in the Greek, did he? Jesus was speaking in Aramaic um, to a Hebrew congregation, and in, um, in Hebrew, you never say, I am. You, you dance around saying, I am, grammatically. The reason why um, Hebrew speakers will never say, I am going to the park. I am Deborah Layton. They would never say that. Because I am is the name of God. So the, the verbal construction for I am is the actual name of Yahweh. And out of respect for the name of God and out of obedience to the commandment not to take the name of the Lord in vain, they will not ever say the name of the Lord. They won't even write it. So in the Hebrew scriptures, um, in the manuscripts, they don't write Yahweh. You never see Yahweh written down. They write Adonai in place of Yahweh. So essentially what Jesus is doing, I think in the language in which he was speaking, he was saying, I am in the sense in which he was saying the name of Yahweh. Can you imagine the shock of his hearers when he says that? Can you imagine um, what kind of an assertion that would be? Because even as he's saying, I am the bread of life, what he's really saying is, I am Yahweh. I am God incarnate. So there are those seven official I am statements that are followed by an object. I am the bread of life. Remember your grammar? I am this this is the object. But then there are two where he just... Yeah, yeah please. If Jesus is speaking in Aramaic, would another Hebrew say in Aramaic, I am, or was that singular also? I'm not sure, because I'm not familiar with the Aramaic enough, and I wish I knew. But I think you're right. Essentially what you're saying is, in Hebrew, would have been blasphemous to say. Would it have been blasphemous in Aramaic? Yeah. I don't know, but I know enough about the mentality, but my guess is that they would have ha- found a different construction. Yeah. Just okay. like they found in Hebrew. Just so that they wouldn't even be alluding yeah. to the Hebrew. Because oh. Aramaic is a derivative language of Hebrew. It's related. And so it's easy to learn one after you learn the other. And what, that's what I understand from those who know. Aramaic. So my guess is that 
I'd like to say that he was using the original, you know, he's using I am in the sense of saying Yahweh. He might not be, but even if he's not, he's still alluding to it. Yeah. And then I think in these other two occurrences, he actually is saying it, and I'll show you why. So in these other two occurrences, in chapter 8, verse um, 58. <clears throat> oh, i got to hurry. Chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is talking to um, the Jewish people about Abraham and about who his father was. Um, you know, if, if he's... You know, they start out by, by kind of insulting him and saying, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That was two major insults to Jesus. And he starts talking about um, who his father is, and um, he starts talking about who their father is, um, and he's, saying, he's asserting that he's greater than Abraham. And it, starts, it spirals downward, so it gets down to 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. But there's no object there. He's saying, I think you really, I think there he really said the divine name. Because do you see what they do next? They pick up stones to kill him. I do think it's a miracle that Jesus didn't die sooner based on what he was doing. They pick up stones to kill him. Um, so he is asserting his divinity. Um, he is asserting his, um, his identity as God incarnate, which is astonishing. Um, and I think that, I think that um, the other gospel writers are not as clear about pointing out these things about Jesus because they didn't have as much time to reflect and to realize what Jesus was doing. Whereas John, I think John was saying, Oh no, he was saying he was God all along, and we just didn't get it. And here's some, here are some of the ways in which he was saying that he was God incarnate, that he is God incarnate. So all of that, will uh, why, and the, uh, one more thing too, one thing that John has that the other three don't have are these long theological discourses. Right now we're in the middle of the one in chapter six, right? These long theological discourses that are all about essentially Jesus' identity as the incarnate son of God. And you see, and so that's why sometimes they're so long that you're like, okay, we're saying the same thing again. He's saying the same thing again. He's saying the same thing again. But it's because they don't believe. They don't get it. So you see that's one of the characteristics of John are these long theological discourses where Jesus is trying to help people understand who he is. So why this? Why the signs? Why the I am statements? Why these long theological discourses? Well, they set you up as you're reading it. They lift the veil on Jesus' identity so that you know that he is fully God and fully man, that he is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, so that then when he goes to the cross as the Passover lamb who was slain on behalf of the whole world, we have that John 3.16 that talks about the Son of Man coming, dying for us. So when, when Jesus actually does die in the Gospel of John, you understand that it is for us, that we need a lamb, a savior who is both God and both divine, so that our sins will be forgiven by a holy God. There's that sense in which um, Jesus all along is revealing his identity, so that by the time John takes us to the crucifixion, we know who this man is and why he has done what he has done. If you turn to John 20, verse 30 through 31, There it is, right? There is the purpose of this book. That's even the title that my ESV says before these two verses. Would someone like to read these two verses? Net? I oh, sorry, you looked up. <laughs> John tells us 
right there at the very end of the book why. He's very clear why he wrote this book. Why did he write this book? That's our answer to the why question, and just as I just said. So that you may, any time it says so that, it's a why. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, <coughs> the Messiah, the man, the son of David, who would come to redeem Israel. And that he is the son of God, the eternal word sent from the Father. And so that by believing, you may have life in his name. That you may have life in his name by believing that he is who he said he was and that he has come to die and to rise so that we might have eternal life through faith in his name. And that, again, so to end on this note, that was really close. Um, and on this note, that is the purpose for the book, and that is the purpose for our study of John. The purpose for these next, you know, the purpose for these weeks that have gone before and these purpose for these weeks that are coming is so that we might have life through believing in the name of Jesus, through believing it, that Jesus is who he said he was and that he has died for us. And so um, in this time together, that, that's our purpose, is that um, through studying the word and through knowing Jesus better, we will have more faith, more life. Um, there's that sense in which you kind of just go around and around, right, as you read scripture. Uh, I, why do we confess our sins every Sunday? We keep needing to, right? Um, and there's this sense in which we keep needing to immerse ourselves in um, the truth about Jesus Christ so that um, our life, our faith would grow, and then that the life that we have through faith in Jesus Christ would become more abundant. There's a sense in which that eternal life, yes, it's pie in the sky when you die, but it's also steak on your plate while you wait. <laughs> I know, I did it. It's one of my, it's one of my future dad's favorite lines, and it's, you know, it's been in my, a part of my life my entire life, so I have to, it just comes out at times. You'll be so pleased. I, <laughs> I think so. Uh, but the, it, that I've internalized it. Yeah, I think so. Um, but there's that sense in which eternal life is not just for when we die, but there's a sense of that abundance of life that comes from knowing God's good pleasure over us no matter what we do because of Jesus Christ. That as we turn to Jesus through in repentance, that then there is more life, abundant life, little green shoots coming up in places where there was only um, a dead, dry lawn <laughs> as I look at all the lawns around us. So um, any questions about that before we pray? Any questions or things you'd like to ask? One thing I had heard years ago that not only did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but he was the only one. Other people raised supposedly people from the dead if they were, you know, in a coma or whatever, they didn't know. But he was the only one who raised somebody who'd been dead three days. And, and we can talk more about that because yeah. there's I did a lot of research on this for my thesis about, you know, these other Jewish rabbis who would travel around and do things that had something to do that were sort of like miracles like what Jesus was doing so his miracles weren't completely unheard of but the way that he was doing was absolutely unheard of and the, the fact that he could do them um, without any of the props or magic of these other guys continued to prove to people that he, there was something else going on you know that he was somewhere else but you're absolutely right. There was the possibility that people could, they had heard of resuscitating someone after one day or after, there's a sense in which the three days, he was really dead. And John is making that clear. You're right, Charlotte. Anybody else?